Well, welcome to the Marty Vento Show podcast, the informative voice for Christianity all across America. You're listening to our Christian parody band, Apologetics. Check them out online. That's Apologetics, last three letters, TIX.com. The official music of the Marty Vento Show podcast. Get ready. Guilty of that to some degree, giving up on the bad days. We'd rather life be like the Yellow Brick Road with Dorothy and Toto, just singing along the way and everything happy, sunshine, blue skies, and not a problem in the world. But, uh, well, you know as well as I do, that's just not reality. Well, welcome once again to the Marty Mito Show podcast. What a delight to be with you here today on the program and I am so blessed. I truly mean that. Another day, another opportunity to talk about Jesus, to tell the whole entire world about him and what he has done and why it is of the utmost importance that we proclaim the gospel message. Because as in the last podcast I did, you realize that people all around you, all these people that, um, again, um, follow different religious belief systems, that believe different things, they themselves are lost. They are lost. And um, they need to hear about Jesus. And uh, we had started last time we got together, I, I entitled it Confronting Islam Part 1. And it was all about this article that uh, was from the front page mag about the Pennsylvania Muslim lawmaker, prayer in the name of Jesus is Islamophobic. It's time for all Christians to convert to Islam. Anything else would offend. The article is about Robert Spencer, and in the article he mentions uh, journalist Todd Starnes and uh, talking about what took place in the Pennsylvania State Assembly. And what took place is simply this. Stephanie Borowitz uh, ended up praying this particular prayer to open the legislative session. And in that prayer, she said, Jesus, you are our only hope. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus that you are Lord. Well, uh, according to reports, Johnson Harold was livid. The prayer she declared was highly offensive to me, my guest, and other members of the House. In a statement, she added that the prayer blatantly represented the Islamophobia that exists among some leaders, leaders that are supposed to represent the people. She said, I came to the Capitol to help build bipartisanship and collaborations regardless of race or religion to enhance the quality of life for everyone in the Commonwealth. 
Well, uh, people are saying, was Representative Burowitz's prayer inappropriate in a setting where not everyone who was present was Christian? Now, what's interesting about this is, according to the article by Robert Spencer, and it's so true, they have seen and witnessed many times before imams say prayers at various legislative bodies that are not non-sectarian, but manifestly Islamic. I mean, even condemning of Jews and Christians at times, while the non-Muslim lawmakers stand with oblivious heads bowed. But comments have been made. But now, you know, here we have the cry, Islamophobic, Islamophobia, that because if you have anything that to say about your faith other than Islam is now offensive to Muslims. Now, again, this, this is not something new. But at the same time, as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond. But I do believe that we need to have a good, wholesome understanding, at least a general understanding of Islam, and why this Muslim representative would say, you know, what you said. I mean, why is everybody bent out of shape about this? Well, first of all, I do think across America, we do see that there is generally attacks verbally against those who are Christians, those who practice their faith, those who want to do the right thing, those who proclaim the name of Jesus. I mean, this is nothing new. I've mentioned this for quite some time. Um, One of the passages of Scripture that I quite often go to is in the book of Matthew. And in its proper context in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples for their first missionary journey. And he's given them instructions, and he, he calls them together, and he gives them authority, first of all, to drive out evil spirits and to heal diseases and sicknesses. And the 12 are there, and he gives them this instruction as they go. He says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter the town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you grow, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Then he tells them instructions, don't take anything with them, uh, yada, yada, yada. But he comes down, and when we finally get to uh, verse 16, we begin to see something that we begin to understand what is going to take place. He said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils, flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, think about this, they're going to get arrested. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you who's speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And he goes on to say down further that all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be 
saved. And he talks about the persecution and how to handle the persecution, talks about the fact that a student is not above his teacher. I mean, if if the teacher himself is going to be called, you know, uh, Beelzebub or Satan himself, how much more the members of his household. He tells them, don't be afraid of them. Just speak the truth. Speak the truth. And he tells the, the fact that the gospel message is, is a message of pre- peace, but it's not going to bring peace to people who are listening to it. Matter of fact, he said, I came to bring a sword. He's going to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then he talks about loving God. And if you love anybody or anything more than him, you're not worthy to be his disciple. But so he lays this out. So the truth of the matter is men are going to hate them because they hated Christ first. He warns them. So when I look out today and I see Christianity, when I see people who are truly living out their faith, not ashamed of Jesus, not ashamed of his teachings, and it's not necessarily that they're Bible-thumping people, but they're just doing what is right, speaking what is true in love, there is going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. Um, I found it interesting, uh, someone the other day was talking about a new job they had, and the corporate policy at the job was they could not talk about politics uh, nor their religion with other coworkers. They were not allowed to do that. They were not supposed to be proselytizing. My response was simply this, talk about Jesus. <laughs> I'm serious. Talk about the person, Jesus. See, some people just, you know, once again, we live in a world today that's just spiraling out of control everywhere we turn. But we have opportunity. I'm going to tell you this right now. There is opportunity like never before to share the gospel. So when I read this article here about this Muslim being highly offended and bothered by this and this Islamophobic and Islamophobia, first of all, uh, phobia is a fear. I would have to say that I have Islamophobia. I'm serious. I have Islamophobia. I have a fear for the Muslims, for those who are involved in Islam. Because their religious belief system is not going to get them to the kingdom of God. It is going to take them down a path that is going to lead right to destruction, to death, to hell itself. Because God has said that. So I am fearful for those who practice Islam. I am fearful for those Muslims who truly do not believe or have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. It's a fear of mine. Um, like I've said this before, I'm, I have homophobia. I'm fearful for the, those involved in homosexuality, sex outside of God's plan, God's purpose for one man, one woman, in holy matrimony, husband and wife, that are engaged uh, in that which is not normal. But the bottom line is it's sin against God. And sin is what separates us, and the wages of sin is death. So I'm fearful for them. I I could go on and on, and and I'm not just making this up. I, I truly do have a fear for them.
When I am out in the mall or I'm at a store or I am somewhere, maybe even eating, and I see them dressed in their garb, and I know that they are practicing Muslims or they, they are of maybe another country and you know, or maybe sometimes there are those converts in the United States that are now following Islam, I, I have a phobia. I'm, af- I'm afraid for them. It is challenging and difficult at times to talk to them, but we must do so because I think that there is greater fear because people are different, because we believe that people won't understand or that we won't be able to make a connection, or the bottom line is we could be fearful that, hey, they will hate us and maybe they'll even kill us because that's what happens in other countries. Matter of fact, it's interesting, in this article here, once again, by Robert Spencer, I'm reading this article here, and he writes in this article, we have seen this before. Uh, He said, buried in the concluding paragraphs of a Christmas Eve 2018 Washington Times report about Muslims in Uganda, they were forcing Christians to convert to Islam, um, and they were also making it clear that the Christian faith itself was an insult to Muslims. And the revenge upon them truly was justifiable. Matter of fact, in June, the Times reported a group of Muslims attacked Christian preachers in eastern Uganda during a crusade where Christians publicly professed their faith and invited others to join. Muslims in the town accused the Christians of mocking Islam by publicly saying Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But it's not just saying that, and I think this is where, as I try to you know, go through this last podcast that I had, we have to be able to take the evidence, the truth found within the pages of Scripture about Jesus and bring the proof to the table that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He's the God-man fully God, fully man. He is the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. We we have to be able to take the Word of God and rightfully divide it, but show them the evidence and the proof. And we realize from Scripture, just as Paul did with the Jews in the synagogue, it was his it was his um, habit. It, it it was part of his routine. Um, it was a part of his ministry that he would go in to the synagogue and he would reason with them for three Sabbaths. But we know that not everybody believed. But there were times that a good number of people believed, put their place, their faith, and their trust in Jesus Christ, recognized him as the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. God did a mighty, mighty, and a powerful work. But Paul had to bring the evidence. He had to go into the Scriptures. He had to show them the prophecies that were spoken hundreds and even thousands of years before Christ came into this world in the what we would call the Incarnation, where God takes upon himself the flesh of man. And, and it, you know, as I look at this, we realize that, especially in other countries— that are predominantly Muslim, there is a price to pay if you're a Christian. I know of a husband and wife that are actually in a Muslim country. They're in there as school teachers, but they're actually Christian missionaries. 
They share their faith. Uh, they follow uh, the the ways of that country and the people, even the garb in which they wear. Um, they firmly believe to be they want to be all things to all men to win some. But they know that at any moment they could possibly suffer greatly, and if not lose their life because they are Christians in a predominantly Muslim country. But, but I think the key here is, is as we look at this, and there's so many other stories, we have to be, come to the point in place of saying, okay, why, does it, why is it okay on one side to say, you know, what you're saying, what you're doing is offensive, it's wrong, and on the other side, when people proclaim Christ and Christianity, uh, you know, that's, that can't be tolerated, that's, that's offensive, that's Islamophobic. You know, you're coming against. I think because the reality is that we know that just as Christians, those who are involved in Islam, they want others to follow. They believe that one day they will meet Allah. They have their daily prayer, their their weekly routines. They follow this religious system that is trying to work or trying to gain entrance into this paradise. And we know as Christians that it is by God's grace that we are saved first and foremost, through faith, and that faith is faith alone. It's a gift from God. And without faith, we will never be justified, declared righteous. We will never be forgiven. We will never be able to enter into that place, unless we have believed, we have put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. The only one who's the mediator between man and God, the only one who can reconcile us between God who has placed judgment upon man. Why? Because of sin. Now, again, these things should become, and there's so much more we could talk about being adopted as as the sons and daughters of the living God, Um, you know, what he has done for us. um, We're forgiven of the past, the present, and the future. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, we are no longer guilty. There's no longer condemnation upon us. And this is all because of Jesus and the life that he lived that we couldn't live the penalty that he paid that we could not pay on the cross, and the fact that on the third day he conquered death, he conquered sin, he demonstrated that he truly was the one that God the Father sent on behalf of man. And we must believe. We must repent, change the way we think, change our mind, which ultimately will change our direction, turn away from our sin, turn to Christ, and realize he is the answer, the answer provided by God himself. So as I look at this article, I I began to realize that there are people that are just angry and mad and upset because they feel that, you know, once again, this this seems to be hypocrisy at best. As I mentioned in in another podcast, we see more and more of Muslim leaders or lawmakers across the United States. But again, they themselves, um, they have an agenda— they want to see people to convert to Islam. They believe that's the only way, the only possible way for ever for all men to live at peace. 
They especially want Christians to convert, um, and if not, they're going to be offended. Well, Christians, we know that there is only one way. His name is Jesus. We shouldn't be ashamed of his name. We shouldn't be ashamed of his teachings. But also, it's how we present ourselves to people. Now, I don't think this representative, uh, 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 let me just get her name here once again. Uh, It's further up on the thing. Um, Barowitz actually did anything wrong. But obviously, because there were Muslims there and other religious beliefs, obviously she, she she stirred the nest, the hornet's nest. She whacked it. And now uh, there are people coming out, especially the Muslims. They're, they're angry. They're angry at this and think that this is uncalled for, and they want to talk about bipartisanship and working together and all this and that. But the truth of the matter is, you know, once again, you know, to, to, to say that a Christian should not talk about Jesus is to say to a Muslim Get rid of your headgear or or the 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 you know the clothes that you wear. Get rid of your prayer time. Get rid of all this. Get rid. And the truth of the matter is, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen on both sides of the fence. Let's just be honest. But we need to confront this. We need to talk about this. Now it's interesting because when we think of prayer, we think about talking to God. Now one of the things I wanted to address here is there has been quite for quite some time, I've heard this for years now, and it's ironic where you hear this stuff, and sometimes it comes from uh, the schools of higher learning, even within the evangelical community, which I'm quite surprised about, but maybe I shouldn't be. But there are a lot of people that will say that Allah and the God of the Bible are the same. So, you know, from that standpoint, they would say that Christians and Muslims should really be able to get together. The The issue comes down to really Jesus and some other issues, but bottom line is when we talk about Allah and God, we're talking about the same person. Matter of fact, probably the average person out there would say that is correct. But is it really? Matter of fact, this is, this is where I think we need to, once again, we need to confront Islam with the truth in love and help them to understand, based upon the Word of God, the Scripture, the evidence, the truth about God when we talk about God. Matter of fact, you may not know this, but the word Allah is used to translate the word God in the Arabic translation of the Bible. So some would say, doesn't that mean that Muslims believe that Allah is the same God as the Christian God? Well, there's where the problem, I probably, well, I would just say probably, it does lie. Um, No one's disputing whether or not Allah is the Arabic word for God. But when Christians speak of God, they are referring to the God of the Bible or the one that that is called Yahweh. And actually, in Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, in the beginning, God, and the word God is continually used in that picture of creation, is Elohim, which is plural. 
which I won't get into right now, which we would say as Christians gives us the evidence, the proof, it begins to show us the picture of what we call the Trinity, which Muslims totally deny the Trinity. But the God of the Bible, by Christians, they believe is Yahweh. When Muslims say Allah, they're referring to the God of the Quran. Now, the thing that we must understand is, truly, the two are very different in many different ways. And, you know, I, over the years, have um, I've got quite a few books from different people that have written different things over the time period. Um, and there are, you know, I'd like to stand upon the Word of God. I, I, I want to go back to the Scriptures because even though certain people, some may be experts, some may be, uh, you know, those within high academia speaking about certain issues, but at the same time, I, I want to realize what God's Word says, the Bible. I want to know what God has to say about this issue. So here's what we say. First of all, as Christians, we would say there is one God. Now, the Muslims would agree there's only one God. We would say that God, Yahweh, um, is above all things. Well, Muslims would say that Allah is above all things. We as Christians would say God is eternal. He always was and always will be. Well, Muslims would say Allah is eternal. Always was, always will be. But again, we have to understand when the Christian is referring to God, he's referring to God who is represented in the pages of Scripture as Yahweh. I mean, that word in which even the Jews themselves did not want to write down uh, that which was referring to him because he's so holy, because he's God. Um, but when Muslims are referring to Allah, they're making a reference to another entirely different being than Yahweh. There may be similarities along the way, but the differences are what really needs to be looked at very carefully and very closely. Um, and if we don't do that, we are going to do a, a disservice and injustice. That's why I think when we confront individuals, when I use the word confront, I'm not talking about engaging in an argument. I'm talking about engaging in a conversation. I, I think we need to learn how to do that. We need to learn to ask questions. We need to learn to be good listeners. And we need to genuinely—I mean, I there's some things I genuinely want to ask people— and I want to find out, you know, you know, like, for instance, if you are one who practices Islam, have you always, I mean, were, you know, if, well, if they're born a Muslim, they would say, yes, I was raised. I, this is all I have ever known. I, I, I want to ask questions to find out about them. Sometimes you may be surprised. You may find out that one of their parents— uh, was Muslim, and the other was not, but but converted to Islam. There's things that we need to find out. We need to ask questions. 
I mean, have you ever, for instance, have you ever looked into other religious belief systems? You know, one of the things I like to ask people quite often, whether they're Muslim or, you know, involved in Islam or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist or agnostic, I don't care who you are. You know, have you ever taken the time to study about Jesus? Have you ever really looked at the man called Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you? Now, remember, that was a big question in in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? He wanted to know what people in the community, in the, in the square, and the people in the, in the time in which he were living, what were they saying about Jesus? Then he said to his 12, who do you say that I am? And we remember it was Simon Peter, uh, you know, who said, you are um, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know based upon God's holy word that Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I'm not going to get into all that, but it's a work of God. The understanding and, and the revealing of who Christ or who Jesus truly is is a work of God. It's supernatural. That's why in sharing the gospel, when I share the gospel with people, my responsibility and your responsibility is not their response. It must be a work of God. But we are to share. So, you know, finding out what people believe about Jesus, finding out what a Muslim believes about Jesus and where they stand. But also talking to a Muslim about Allah and finding out from that Muslim exactly what, tell me about Allah. Because, and I really believe that that is very, very, very important. Because what we will find is the God of the Bible and Allah are truly different, very distinctively different which makes a world of difference. There are some similarities, as I've already mentioned, but the differences are, well, they need to be noted. Like, for instance, according to the Bible, God's holy word, God is knowable. I want you to think about this for a moment. And if you, you know, if you get a chance, you can look at this some point in time, but in John chapter 17... John chapter 17, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. John chapter 17, um, verse 3. Here's what what Jesus says. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, there is an understanding that the God of the Bible is knowable. We can know him. We would say, and further on in that passage, along with other passages, that to know Jesus is to know God the Father. To know God the Father is to know Jesus his Son. Because we as Christians believe that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. We talk about the Trinity, and again, I don't want to get into it right now, but we we understand 
one God revealed to us in three persons. And uh, sometime when we talk about the Trinity, I'll get into that, but I'll give you the, the definition of the Trinity, which I wrote down, I kept in my Bible. Dr. James Wife from Alpha and Omega Ministries has a phenomenal just definement of the Trinity uh, that is of just, you, you, it really just bring it right to the forefront where the rubber meets the road. But anyways, the God of the Bible is knowable. Jesus came into the world that we might know God. We might know his Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, again, we got to be careful because remember, there are certain times when you share Scripture with Muslims, they are going to take offense at certain things. To call Jesus God or equal to God is, is blasphemy, they would say. They would say, again, you know, Truly, Allah has no begotten Son. But we know as Christians that God's only begotten Son is Jesus. But Allah has no sons. But you got to remember, too, in Islam, Allah is unknowable. He is so transcendent, so exalted, that no man could ever personally know Allah. But we in Christianity, the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, man can come into a personal relationship with God. But again, Allah, that can't be. Allah of the Quran is so distant, so far off, so abstract that no one could actually know him. Um, and that's important. Now, now with that, I'll share this with you, too. The God of the Bible is spoken of as a personal being, a person who has intellect, emotion, and will. Now, we know that God is spirit, but again, when we look at the attributes, the characteristics, we, we see this of a person, a being. Now, we have to be careful because there have been false teachers that say, well, God's about, he's about the average height of a man, about six foot three, and a, you know, his hand may be a little bit bigger, but, you know, normal arm length and this and size eight shoe or nine shoe or something. I mean, some of these false teachers have come up with some crazy, ridiculous things. But we know when it comes to intellect, emotion, will, we know that he is spoken of as a personal being. But if you contrast that with Allah, um, he's not understood as a person. And the reason is, is because Muslims would say that would lower him to the level of a man. It can't be done. You can't do that. Allah's too great to know, too great to understand. And see, again, Christianity is the story, is the understanding that the Creator, whose greatest creation was not the earth, was not the animals, was not the sea, was not the heavens. His greatest creation was man. We are the only created thing of God or being of God that was created in his image, which is so important to understand and exactly what that means, and we don't have the time to get into it today, but, but I could just tell you this, that, that we have, there are communicable, there are things that are about God that, that we have. And there are other things that we don't. 
non-communicable things like God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's eternal, though our soul is eternal. I mean, there's there's so many things that as we begin to study, we begin to look at, um, you begin to see that we can have, and really who started this, the Creator himself had a relationship with his creation in the book of Genesis, with his first created human, Adam. And then Eve came from the rib of Adam, and God walked with them in the garden, in a sense. He, he communed with them. They had fellowship. Uh, they had a relationship, communicating with one another, which, once again, is important to understand the true God is the God of the Bible, because Allah does not have that with his followers. His followers are constantly trying to do things that they hope and believe will please him, but they really won't know until the very end. Um, and, and again, you got to understand where they're coming from, too, because they're taught they, that Allah, if Allah is a person or a spirit, is, is actually blasphemous to them. Because once again, as I mentioned earlier, it would demean Allah from being this exalted great being. And they couldn't do so. But once again, we think of John 4.24 and other places, but the concept that God is spirit. Um, Jesus himself is the one who's teaching what God is all about. Again, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I say nothing, I do nothing, unless the Father tells me. I mean, see, that's why Jesus, the man called Jesus, becomes so um, controversial with the Muslim, with all people, because of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God incarnate, the Son of the living God, the only begotten Son. He referred to God as his Father. And see, that's blasphemous to someone who practices Islam. They don't have a son. There's only one God, Allah. He's not revealed himself in that personal, intimate way with anybody. Not even the prophets, including Muhammad. So so we, we have to understand where the Muslim is coming from and what the Muslim has been taught since childhood right through adulthood, um, which is important as we have a conversation with them. Now, I firmly believe that we can really, in a loving way, challenge them because when we testify to the truths that we find in the Scripture, along with the testimony of our own life, in the personal relationship we have with God, the Father, through his son, Jesus Christ, it is very intriguing, I believe, to others who don't have that. Because, again, the way that God has created all men, he has created us with this desire to have relationships. We want to have—like for myself as men, we want, we want to have relationships with other men. We want to have buddies. We want to— 
have things that we could do together. We we want to be um, you know involved in activities where we oppose one another to see who's better. You know, we talk about sport, or some call it the Lord sport today. You know, we like stuff like that. We enjoy celebrating together. We enjoy working on things and accomplishing things together, that camaraderie, that relationship. Then we think about, you know, for instance, for a man, a relationship with a woman who he will marry and he will love and he will be with for all the days of his life and how important were the two become one. We think about relationships with our children, our offspring. Um, We think about relationships with our parents, uh, those who have loved us and taken care of us. You know, we we look at that, and and that is something that God has created in our DNA. Why? Because it is a part of what God is all about, having a relationship. Now, Now, listen to me carefully. God will always be God. No one has created him. But at the same time, we will never ever be God. He will always be the creator. We will always be his creation. But he, I will say this time and time again, he is the one who has created us to be in relationship with him. He has created the means and the method. And even though sin separated man from God because of the sin that took place in the garden, God continued to carry out the plan, the sovereign plan, so that man could continue to truly have relationship with God. Now, it's not because God's lonely. It's not because he needs us. There's some people that get this, you know, if it wasn't for God creating us, he'd be lonely all throughout eternity. That's not it. We are his prized possession. I mean, if you ever read the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 139, which is why we as Christians know that life is so precious, that we don't have a right to take a life, that abortion is wrong. We understand that we are all God's creation and how wonderful and fearfully made we are by God and how much he he knows our our coming and our going. He, He knows our thoughts from afar. There's nowhere that the Bible tells us in in other passages of Scripture, there's nowhere that we could go from his presence because he's omnipresent. He's spirit. We understand that we're more precious than the birds. He takes care of us. I mean, the list goes on and on. We realize, and that's why when we have the Holy Spirit within us, we cry out, Abba, Father. Daddy God, Daddy, our Heavenly Father. Even Jesus on the cross in in those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he experienced that at that one point in time, what I believe would it be to be like a sinner who is separated from God. The torment, the pain that which he never knew or experienced before. Because he's the son of the living God. Him and his father are one. 
So, so I look at all this, and again, I guess what I'm trying to say here is to the, to, to the Muslim, to those who are practicing Islam, we have to understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, we have to create the understanding based upon Scripture that this is the true and living God. Think about the greatest attribute of the true God of the Bible is love. God has feelings for his creatures especially man. What God has made was good. He saw that it was good. But when we look at the Quran, for instance, we don't find love presented as a chief attribute of Allah. The Bible, God says, God is love. Instead, the transcendence of Allah is his chief attribute. So they would tell you that Allah really doesn't have feelings towards man. Some would even say it's foreign to Islamic teaching. And once again, the reason, because it would reduce Allah to being a mere man, which is blasphemous to a Muslim. Um, The true God of the Bible, quickly, um, is limited by his own immutable and unalterable nature. In other words, like for instance... There are things that God can't do, even though God can do anything. He can't lie. God can't lie because that is not a part of who he is. He can never act in a way that would contradict his divine nature. We see passages like Titus 1-2, Hebrews 6-18, 2 Timothy 2-13. But again, if you look at the Quran, you discover that Allah is not limited by anything. He is not even limited by his own nature. He can do anything, anytime, anyplace, anywhere with no limitations. Well, uh, again, that's not the true God. That's not the true God that we serve, we know, that exists. And again, when we understand these things and we're able to share these things in love with others, especially those of the Islam belief system. We're able to show them exactly the true and the living God of the Bible. We're able to show them the grace of God and the salvation that he has provided for man through a Savior who is the intercessor, who is the one mediator between him and man. We find that in 1 Timothy 2.5. But yet in the Quran, there's no concept of this grace for Allah. They are just constantly trying to find ways and means based upon the prophet's writings, Muhammad and others, that they do this, they do that, and they believe and hope that at that time they will find Allah pleasing of what they have done. But the truth of the matter is, Allah and the God of the Bible were not the same God. He's not. So I want to encourage you to, again, remember the principle from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Remember the principles. Take the time. You're not looking for an argument, but you're looking to engage in conversation. You're looking to take the time and share with a Muslim the truth about the God of the Bible. Remember to ask questions. That is one of the keys, is to ask questions, trusting truly 
God to do a work that only God can honestly do. We can't do it. We're going to continue in this series talking about uh, what Muslims believe and how we can truly engage, confront in a loving manner. Because in a world in which we live, we know that Islam continues to grow, continues to find converts, especially here in America, as we find more and more Muslims coming to America. The question is, are we as Christians truly prepared to share, to teach, to defend the truth? But remember, first and foremost, we must learn the Word of God and understand what His Word says what it's all about, and why it's so important to us. Until next time, God bless from the Marty Mitos Show podcast.